You're listening to the Faith Roots Audio Podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. Simply search Faith Roots on YouTube and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Hello, I'm Willie George. Welcome to the Faith Roots Podcast. I want to talk this month about leadership. I want to talk about four things, and, and trust me, they're way more than four. But I want to talk about four things that every leader needs to know. And these are four absolute essentials, and they're just the beginning. But if you'd focus on these four things, this would help you be a better leader in your home, in church, on the job, any place where you have leadership responsibility, these things will work. So I'm going to get right into it. We're going to begin reading in 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And this is the story, I'm sure you're familiar with it, I don't know why I seem to turn to this all the time for various different reasons. It's the story of David and Goliath. Now the Philistines gathered their armies to battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up a battle array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And a champion, uh, a mighty man, it says in Hebrew, he went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs, a bronze javelin between his shoulders. The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. And he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And you, the servants of Saul, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly uh, afraid. Now, the devil was actually behind all of this, and Goliath is actually being influenced by Satan here. And there's a spirit on him. I've, I've found this to be true many, many times. I've seen this happen in 53 years of walking with God, 52 years of walking with God, and 50 years in ministry. I've seen this happen. Whenever there is a false word given, when someone contradicts the word of God, the presence of an evil spirit will very often accompany that. Stay with the person who receives the evil word for days, trying to discourage and deceive them and to bring a dark cloud over them. I got a false prophecy once, and that dark cloud stayed on me for several days, and finally I realized this isn't God. And the person who gave me the word spoke in the name of the Lord and blah, blah, blah. It was all supposed to be from God. And I began to realize this is all about fear. There's nothing about this that's right. I rebuked it. I took authority over it. And the whole thing lifted. 
when the Holy Spirit inspires someone to speak to you in an opposite way, the presence of the Lord and the presence of the Holy Spirit will be with you in a special way for several days to help you with enlightenment and encouragement. And those are different things, totally different things. And that's what we see here. Goliath is speaking and there's the presence of an evil spirit and he's broadcasting that spirit. If you could have seen into the spirit realm, you would have seen demonic spirits going out to all the men of Israel to discourage them. And uh, But the, the devil was really calling out to Saul, and he had boldness to call to Saul because Saul had violated the word of God, and he was not walking with God closely. Now, he turned down 80 different challenges because Goliath came out for 40 days, and two times a day, morning and night, he came out to challenge the Israelites. So Saul had 40 chances to go down and fight with this giant and he would not do it. Now Saul didn't start this way. Uh, He actually began his kingship in honor. I want to read to you how he started, because how he started was great. Uh, This is 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verses 20 through 26. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it says, When Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And they finally came down to Saul, the son of Kish. He was the one that they were looking for. And uh, they said, where is he? And he had been hiding among all of the baggage. And uh, so he stood among the people taller than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. And so he, he was very, very, very humble. And uh, that's what he was like when he first became the king. He also had this sense of righteous indignation to protect the people of Israel. Uh, Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead, uh, uh, 1 Samuel 11, 1 says. And uh, the men of Jabesh Gilead said, make a covenant with us and we'll serve you. In other words, they volunteered to become servants. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, on this condition I'll make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all, all Israel. And so the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul. They told him the news in the hearing of the people. And all the, pa- the people lifted up their voices and wept. Uh, now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field, and he said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him what had happened to, at Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came on Saul when he heard the news, and his anger was greatly aroused. Now he went out and beat these uh, Ammonites and uh, discomfited them. It was amazing how he was used of God. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13 uh, let's take a look at something else here. We'll go to uh, verse uh, 5, 1 Samuel. Uh, so it says in verse 5, the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, uh, 30,000 chariots, some texts say 3,000 chariots. Either way, it's way more uh, military equipment than what Israel had. They didn't have the chariots anyway. 6,000 horsemen and people infantry, which would be uh, on foot uh, like the sand of the seashore in multitude. And anyway, uh, the Bible says... Uh, that Saul was used of God to bring about a great victory here. He wasn't uh, bothered by these enemies. He knew what to do, and he fought against them. I I go to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we'll start with verse uh, 17. And, And what we're seeing here is this man had a courageous attitude. And this is how Samuel the prophet 
talk to him. He said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Now, now, now think about that. When you were humble, didn't you have great authority? See, great authority comes from humility. When you humble yourself, you'll have way more authority than you would any other way. And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now God sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites and fight against them until they're consumed. So he, he had been used of God and he's commended for these attitudes. But then he changed and uh, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. And basically, here's why. He feared the people. The people wanted all of the stuff of the Amalekites. And uh, Samuel was very clear. God wants you to go destroy them and their stuff. And here's why. Because God wanted everybody in the neighborhood to know, we are dealing this punishment to the Amalekites because of how they continually treat us. They murder our wives, our children. They are skulkers. They do not hit us head on. They liked to find vulnerable spots. They had always done this. Even after the Red Sea moment, they had the guts and the lack of respect to, to attack the people of Israel after God had shown this incredible favor toward Israel. And so God said to Moses, you will be at odds with Amalek forever. He's going to be an enemy of yours and of Israel forever. And so when the people went down and took all of the stuff, they're sending a message. And the message is, we're just like the Amalekites. We kill and steal. We want their stuff. That's why we killed them, because we wanted their stuff. And that is not what God wanted to convey. God wanted to convey, look, it, this is not about stuff. It's not about uh, us getting all of their property. This is about them being an evil and wicked group of murdering people and murderous people, and we're going to stop that. And so uh, Saul didn't do it. He, he, he gave in to pressure. And this is what happened. He blamed all of the people for his own disobedience. He quit being humble, and now he's deflecting responsibility. And the reason I want to bring this up when we're talking about leadership is this, is leaders have to have the right attitudes. And uh, he started out with a humble attitude, but just because you start out with that doesn't mean you'll necessarily finish. And so this is where he ultimately uh, failed. He needed counsel, but he had totally cut himself off from Samuel the prophet. He had quit obeying God. He had not followed any of the instructions God gave him. And this is what happened. First Samuel 28, verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. His heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord didn't answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or Thummim or the prophets. Uh, then Saul said to the servants, Find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, in fact, there is a woman who's a medium at Endor. She was a witch. And so he disguised himself and put on other clothes and went to go to this woman for counsel. And First Chronicles says this in chapter 10, verse 13. It says, So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he didn't keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. He went to a demon-possessed person to get guidance to lead the people of God. Now, this man started out right, but as a leader, he failed miserably. And here's the central lesson of the life of Saul. Doesn't matter how much ability you have, 
Doesn't matter what your gifts are. Doesn't matter how much people like you or want to follow you. He had all those things going for him. He was a very imposing figure physically. But Saul feared people. And he was more concerned about pleasing people than he was about pleasing God. And if you're going to be a leader, you have to reach a point where you say, I will please God even when it makes some people unhappy. I will put God first. I will make unpopular decisions. Every leader has to do that. If you think for a minute that you can please all of the people around you and please the culture around you, please the city around you, and please God at the same time, you're wrong because they are at odds with one another. Now, now, don't get me wrong. We don't go out on purpose to try to pick fights with the city we live in or with the culture around us or with people that we lead and serve. But there will be times when we have to take stands that are unpopular. Jesus did that. And there is a spirit today in a lot of the church and that spirit is that if we do everything right, we won't make anybody in the world unhappy. And that's a lie. You will make the world unhappy. You will call some people not to like you. But guess what? I've been doing this for a long time. And one of the things I've seen, after a number of years, some of the people who hated me the most became some of my strongest supporters because they saw the hand of God on me. They saw the fruitfulness of God on me. They saw God vindicate me, and they turned. And so I want to encourage you to take this lesson from the life of Saul, that a strong leader has to make a decision that you are going to please God first, even if it means making some people unhappy. this month about four things every leader needs to know. And so I want to take you back to the book of 1 Samuel. We're looking at the life of David. He's only one of many leaders we're going to look at biblically, but uh, David had an incredible attitude toward leadership. Uh, he was an instinctive leader. Uh, uh, he, he doesn't seem to have come from a family of leaders. Uh, there's no record to suggest that his dad was a great leader. He certainly didn't have brothers who were great leaders, but David was a great leader. And it's something that was a gift of God, something in his personality God put into him. Uh, but David had to choose it as well. And I want to show you some of the things that he chose. So we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning verse 22. It says, David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper. The supplies were for his brothers. He's got three in the army, and that's who he came to check on. He ran to the army, and he came and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words he'd been speaking, you know, for 40 days. And David heard. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him. They were dreadfully afraid. So there had to have been a hustle and a bustle. People started scurrying because they, they don't know. Is he coming up the hill? Is he going to come out of the bottom of the valley? Is he going to come after us individually? The, the men of Israel were dreadfully afraid. And so they said, have you seen this man who has come up? 
Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him the king will enrich with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Uh, Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine, and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to these men. And his anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride, the insolence of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done? Is there not a cause? All I did was talk. And uh, his brother was just jumping all over him. Nobody can cut you down like somebody who grew up with you, um, or, or maybe one of your parents. Uh, uh, this is very common, in fact. Uh, but Saul had put Israel in a very precarious position. That's why the fear is so great here. This had a solution, but Saul completely destroyed the possibility of this problem being solved. And the reason is because Saul had completely ruined his relationship with the priesthood of Israel. And the the chief priest at that time was Samuel. And Samuel took special uh, care for Saul and wanted to be his coach and mentor. He was there to help guide him. But Saul reached a place where he would no longer listen to Samuel. And it says in 1 Samuel 15, 35, Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. So even before this, this is chapter 17, back in chapter 15, it says that the relationship with Samuel and Saul was over. God told Samuel to go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem and and put oil on the head of one of his sons to anoint him to be king. And Samuel said this in 1 Samuel 16, 2, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And not long after this, Saul did have all of the priests in a certain place, had them all killed, had them all executed by an outlaw from Edom, a bloodthirsty man. So he had no relationship with priesthood, and so this problem could not have been solved. Now let me show you how God intended to solve such issues. And here it is in Deuteronomy chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see the horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you're on the verge of battle that the priest, one guy, not all of the priests, one guy, that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. He shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you're on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Now that's fascinating to me. Basically, God said in Deuteronomy 20, that all you need to have is one priest come and walk before your army and say these words to you, and what's going to happen? The anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit 
is going to be with you and he's going to convince you that you can win. You will not be filled with fear. You'll be filled with a great confidence and you're going to be able to fight in such a way as to put fear in the enemy. Now, just the reverse was going on here in 1 Samuel 17 because demonic spirits were being channeled through the words of Goliath into the hearts of all the men of Israel, and nobody was resisting. There's nobody in the battlefield speaking the word of God. There's nobody reminding Israel and its men of the covenant. Nobody's doing any of that. And so the very thing that Saul needed, he himself had absolutely ruined and set aside because he destroyed his relationships with the priesthood. And that's why he was in trouble. There was no one who could help him. Now, David comes on the scene, and he's not influenced by the words of Goliath. They mean nothing to him. They hit him and, and have no bearing because David knows how to refuse this stuff and how to resist it. And so uh, he was not affected by the fear of the men of Israel. He was not affected by the jealousy and the enmity of his own brethren. He was not affected by the king. Nobody could talk David out of his faith and confidence. The anointing of a leader enables that leader to stand alone if necessary. And that really is the lesson that I want to get across today. God needs leaders. He uses leaders. Everything in the kingdom rises and falls on leadership. Therefore, there is an anointing that abides on a leader. When someone's a God-called leader, there is an anointing on them to help them set a course for the people of God to follow. And even though we're in the New Testament, God still uses leaders. He set them in the church. We read it in Ephesians chapter 4. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, the devil did everything that he could to dig at David, to get him to turn. Here's what his brother said. Why did you come down here? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I mean, he's putting down what David has done. He's making light of his job. I know your pride, the insolence of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. So he's accusing him falsely. And let, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. I had a pastor friend who the other day, uh, one of the guys on his board came and just began to attack him. He, he called him all kinds of names and said things about him that were not true and made all kinds of accusations. And that is never the way of God. When, when you go to the book of Genesis chapter 4 and you see how Cain rose up and slew Abel, his brother, God did not approach Cain with an accusation. The Bible says Satan is the accuser of the brother. Now God knows that Cain killed his brother Abel, but he doesn't accuse him. He comes to him and he gives him a chance. He offers him the highest level or highest opportunity for repentance by asking him a question, where is Abel, your brother? He wants Cain to have a twinge of conscience. He wants Cain to say, oh God, I am so sorry I killed my brother, but he didn't do that. He became mouthy toward God. I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? So the next step that God does and that he takes is not an accusation. It is a presentation of the physical evidence. And he says to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood cries to me 
from the ground. So you see how God deals with people, and you see how Satan inspires us to deal with each other. And so these words of David's oldest brother are, are not a help at all. This is a manifestation of the work of the enemy. He is the accuser of the brethren. And so this is not how God would confront. God doesn't have to use those techniques. He doesn't do it at all. Now, David didn't call himself to the battlefield. He didn't call himself to the feast. He wasn't even invited to the feast when the prophet came to his house and poured the oil on his head. They left David out with the sheep and didn't even bother to invite him. And when Samuel went through the first six boys and said, uh, is there anybody else? Do you have anyone else? And Jesse said, yes, there's the youngest. He said, we're not going to finish till you bring him here. So they bring in David, and the Lord says to Samuel, arise, anoint him, this is he. And so Samuel poured the oil, the special anointing oil. There's a recipe for it in the book of Leviticus, and they were told exactly how to make this up. And he poured this oil onto the head of David, but the Holy Spirit came on David from that time forward. Now, the Holy Spirit had come on Saul, but he would come and go. He would be there for a season and then not be there. The Holy Spirit came on David and stayed. And so David had this amazing anointing on him, and uh, he was not about to allow his brother uh, to talk him out of the, the covenant of God and the anointing of God. So uh, he tried to minimize David's experiences, and then he attributed David's boldness to insolence. And um, he falsely accused him. And you know, that often happens when someone does a good work for God. <laughs> uh, they, they get attacked and accused. I remember years ago, 1973, 74, I started picking up kids on Sunday school buses in towns other than where we lived. Uh, the first town was 16 miles away. Uh, the next town was 42 miles away. We went and knocked on doors, picked up kids. And uh, let me tell you what happened. The pastors in some cases, pastors in those cities of churches would find out where we were going, go up to the homes, knock on the doors, and try to tell those people not to let their kids ride our buses. And they stirred up dissension against us and division against us and said, they're coming here to get our kids. And I confronted some of these guys. I'm only 20 years old when this is going on. And here's what I let them know. These kids were not being reached by anybody. When I knocked on their doors, nobody was taking them to church at all. And you're calling them your kids, but you didn't do anything to reach them. I did something to reach them, and I will continue to do something to reach them. You know what happened? We didn't lose a kid. We didn't lose a single kid. You know what it did to our families? These people said, I don't know who these people think they are, but we like you, and our kids love you, and they love your church, and they're going to keep coming to your church. It didn't hurt us at all. But it was an attempt of the enemy to keep these kids from receiving the Word of God. Satan does that at every level. doesn't matter where you are. It could be a small town in West Texas. It could be on a battlefield in Israel. It, 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 it could be in a big city. This is the way the enemy works. He will accuse you and accuse your motives falsely. David didn't give in to it. And he was able to stand alone before King Saul. Now I want you to listen to this. I found this fascinating. David said to Saul, 
1 Samuel 17, 34. Your servant used to keep his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock. I went out after it, struck it, delivered the lamb from its mouth, and when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, Moreover, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Now listen to Saul's response. He said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. At the beginning of this conversation, he tried to stop David from going. But at the end, David's words of faith even had an impact on this unbelieving king. And he was willing to let him go. And by the way, David is about to save his own brother from being killed by the Philistines. And he did. I want you to see something here, and it's this. If you're going to be a leader, there are going to be times when you have to stand alone with God. It would be great if your brethren stood with you at all times. It would be great if the people around you, even those who profess a belief in Christ, it would be great if they supported you. But you have to be willing to do the right things, even when other people don't. That means then that there is a time when you break away from the pack. That's what a leader does. There are times when a leader says, no, I can't go to that party. I, I'm, I, I, I can't do that. And you turn down an opportunity for social engagement because you're not sure that being in this place is going to be a Christ-honoring experience. There are going to be times that you have to keep working when everybody else is taking time off. Listen, as a pastor, uh, you won't build a great church if you are constantly taking time off. I believe in being refreshed, but I'm going to tell you something. I didn't build a great church by going on vacation all the time. I built a great church by being faithful and steady. Now, we took time for refreshing, but here's what I want you to see. You can't always do what everybody else is doing. You can't always do what the gang is doing. You've got to be willing to stand alone with God if that's what it takes. I want to make sure we're crystal clear about this first week of the lesson. And we've danced around this, but now I'm going to just put it right out front and center. Every leader needs to be a self-starter. If you're going to be an effective leader, you have to be a self-starter. You cannot wait for someone else to come pump you up, uh, jack you up, excite you, uh, get you to go do what you've got to do. You've got to be the kind of person who does that for himself or herself. Self-starting leaders make the most of their circumstances. That's what a self-starting leader does. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated at the contrast between the first two kings of Israel, Saul and then David. Uh, when Saul is chosen to be king, he's actually out looking for his father's lost donkeys. And uh, he goes to the house of the prophet uh, Samuel to inquire to see if he can tell him where these donkeys are. And Samuel the prophet begins to tell him in the most amazing way that you're going to be the next king, the first king of Israel and uh, tells him all of how it's going to happen. 
tells him what's going to happen on the way home, how the Spirit of God is going to come on him, how he's going to prophesy, tells him everything that's going to happen in the next several days. And, and then when he is introduced to the people of Israel, everybody shouts and they start praising God and they say, God save the king. And listen to what happened when he goes home. 1 Samuel 10, 26 says this, Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. And then shortly after that, three chapters later, it says Saul chose for himself, 1 Samuel 13, 2, 3,000 men of Israel. So he, he handpicked the best guys. So this is how he gets started. He gets started with a boom. And the supernatural confirmation of the Holy Spirit is just incredible. The words of the prophet Samuel are unreal. The detail is there. It's just amazing. Conversely... The anointing of David and the selection of David and his becoming king is done in a totally different way. He doesn't even get invited to his own family's dinner. Uh, when the prophet Samuel comes to his house, uh, they don't even invite David to the ceremony. He's out with the, the sheep. They figure he's not important enough to be there. And so Samuel comes to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be king, he goes through the first six, and none of them are the one that God chose. And so he asks the question, do you have anyone else? Is there another one? And they say there is the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel says, we won't sit down until he comes. And so uh, David was brought in, and when Samuel saw him, the Lord said, arise, anoint him, this is he. And so we know that David eventually went out and killed Goliath and began to work for King Saul. But listen to what happened when David had to flee from King Saul. And, and he doesn't have all of these men of Israel hollering, God save the king. He didn't have that for him. Uh, 1 Samuel 22, 2. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to David. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Now Saul had 3,000 of these chosen men. Uh, David had the guys who had the three Ds, uh, uh, distress, debt, and they're discontented. That, that's who he had. He had a ragtag group. But yet, who was the better king? And who had the dynasty that lasted longest? Who accomplished the most? Who was the most valiant warrior? They're hands down, it's David. But what I want you to see is he did not start with what Saul started with. Saul had all of the advantages. And you know, I've seen this happen many times. I've seen young men start up churches in big cities, and they have amazing speaking gifts. And it just seems like in no time, there are 1,000 people, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 people in no time. Just have an incredible uh, ability to inspire a following. And they seem to have none of the battles that most other people fight. And someone else comes along and it's just hard sledding. Or maybe God calls them to a city that's not as big or a city that's more difficult or a city where the, the culture is somewhat against the founding of a church. Don't ever let that stop you. If God calls you to be a leader and to do work for him, learn to be a self-starting leader because God will never ever call you to failure. He will not call you to fruitlessness. It may be a little slower coming to you than it is for others. But trust me, God is always faithful and he will reward you, especially if you learn how to be a self-starter. Now, David had great success 
And we know that he went out and fought Goliath and killed him, cut his head off, and he turned the world upside down when he did that. And people still talk about it today. Everybody knows the story of David and Goliath. But David wasn't arrogant. And even after he had this amazing victory, he was careful how he fought his battles. He did not bite off more than he could chew. And that's what I see that a self-starter does. A self-starter doesn't just jump blindly into new opportunities, taking on anything and everything that comes their way. A self-starter carefully chooses his fights. Let's look at it. 1 Samuel 22, verses 3, 4, and 5, Then David went to Moab and was in a stronghold. So apparently he had some kind of a fortress or a hideout where he had a certain amount of security. And the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. you got to get out of here. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David had to leave where he was. And so he was very careful to obey God. He didn't use his own wisdom. He followed what God said to him. And that's one of the reasons God could bless David. Now I want you to see something else here. We talk about how he picked his battles carefully. The Bible says, Then they told David, 1 Samuel 23.1, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah. They're robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. So he did that. Uh, But it's important to notice here, he didn't just do it impulsively. He sought the Lord. And that's what a self-starter does. Here's why. A self-starter wants to be a, a finisher And you know that in order to be a finisher, you've got to have the backing of the Lord on what you do. You don't just jump impulsively to everything you see. Now, we live in a day when we can look over into the worlds of other people. We can see other churches. We can see their ministries. We can see how they grow. We can watch the dynamism in their services. And we hear all the reports of what they do. And in some ways, it's encouraging. In some ways, it's a curse. And I'll tell you why. Because we feel like we're not doing enough when we see people. And very often, we are provoked into doing things that we probably shouldn't be doing. You want to follow God to places where you can win. So you don't compare yourself to other people. A great victory for you might seem insignificant to someone else. But it's all important that you obey God. Listen to me. Years ago, I got a great piece of advice when I was ordained in the ministry. And that was about 50 years ago. And this is what I was told as a very young man. Willie, obey God. I got that from a very, very influential person. Willie, obey God. They didn't say, Willie, go do something great. They didn't say, Willie, go do something important. They didn't say, Willie, go do something that everybody will notice. They said, Willie, obey God. And that's all you can do. You obey God. And if you obey God, you will be playing to an audience of one, and that's who counts. God counts more than everybody else. Now, here's what happened. David went out and he saved Keilah. And this brings me to the second point here. You have to be independent of the people that you save. Now, I want you to pay close attention. Um, Saul was coming to Keilah. He heard that David was there, and he was going to destroy the city uh, because David was in it. So David sought God. This is 1 Samuel 23, 11. He said, will the men of Keilah deliver me into the hand of Saul? 
will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you. That's amazing to me. He rescues these people from the Philistines, and yet the Lord tells him these same people who you just saved from the Philistines, they're going to turn you over to Saul when Saul comes. Now that had to be heartbreaking. But I want to tell you about David. David did not let that stop him. So when you're in ministry or in a leadership position, when you're following God as a leader, there are going to be times that people will disappoint you, they will let you down, and here's how you've got to respond. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 say this, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, meaning that you keep your eyes on the Lord. I was getting my hair cut yesterday, and the girl who was cutting my hair was talking about a, a scandal and uh, something that we had recently heard and, and, uh, and how disappointing it was. And, and, and she, she said, do you ever get discouraged by these things? I said, no, I really don't. And, 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 I, and I told her, I said, you know, I learned early, early on not to be moved by the failures of other people. And i got to tell you, there were some people who really hurt me, people who really let me down, people who disappointed me. I have to say there were periods of hours, not days and weeks. I never let it go to days and weeks. But there were periods of hours where I was heartbroken over something that happened or didn't happen that I thought should happen. But I learned something. I learned that I could always go to God. That was always my response. I'm going to the Lord. And the Lord always answered me. He always either gave me a scripture or opened a door or put something in my heart. He never failed to let me down. And that's what I want you to see. When you are a self-starter, even in your disappointments, you learn to look to the Lord because ultimately you're doing everything you do for the Lord. Any leader who is worth his or her salt has to learn to be a self-starter. That's one of the most important lessons you'll ever get. about how to become a self-starter. You may not be a self-starter right now. I wasn't always a self-starter, but I learned how to be a self-starter. And you can do the same thing. 1 Samuel chapter 30, uh, we read the story about devastating setbacks that hit David. And a self-starter knows how to deal with a devastating setback. So let me read to you what happened. Now it happened, 1 Samuel 30 and verse 1, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the Negev or the south and Ziklag, they attacked Ziklag, burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, their daughters had been taken captive. And David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had been taken captive. 
Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people were grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, uh, I want you to see that even great leaders get hit with setbacks. And David got hit with a setback even though he was following God. Uh, you, you can't always uh, have positive circumstances. There will be great attacks against you. And sometimes when they come, uh, we often think, well, if I had been doing everything I was supposed to do, we would not have had this setback. And that's just not true. David was doing what he was supposed to do, and they got hit with this attack. So here's a, a huge setback. It's how you respond to it that really matters. Now, David's followers do what most followers do. They're followers. They want to assign blame. And followers like to fix blame, but they don't have solutions. And that's the difference between a leader and a follower. If bad things happen to you and you want to sit around and fix the blame, and there are times that you do need to find out who's responsible for this, that, or the other, and it may mean you have to remove somebody or discipline somebody, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Wise leaders know about finding solutions. How do we solve this? How do we stop this from happening again? What kind of safeguard can we put here into our systems to keep this thing from coming back? When, if you're a fatalist where you think, it doesn't matter what I do, these things are going to happen no matter what, uh, you're wrong. When these negative things come, you can build on them and you, you can make certain that they don't hurt you in the future like they did this time. All right, the actions of the Amalekites made them vulnerable to a counterattack. And here's why. Because they had a huge number of captives. They had women, children, little children. They probably had some older people with them. And they had a huge uh, amount of spoil. They were carrying all this on their animals. Uh, they were not able to travel with the same speed that they'd had when they attacked the city. Now, David sought the Lord. Followers spoke of stoning him, but David had to go to the Lord. And he didn't go to his followers to find encouragement. In fact, there wasn't anybody around who wanted to encourage him. When you do not have human encouragement, don't let that stop you. You go to the Lord. And by the way, even when you do have human encouragement, you go to the Lord. Sometimes it's so easy to go to a good friend or a good counselor that we never even bother to see what the Lord says because we know that a good counselor or a good friend will often lift us up and encourage us. And I'm all for that. But don't ever stop seeking God. God is the one ultimately who's going to give you the word that will encourage you, strengthen you, and the strategy that will guide you. And those are the two things you need when you get hit with devastating circumstances. You've got to have that spirit of encouragement and that sense it's going to be okay. That's going to guide you. And then the next thing you've got to have is the strategy. What steps do I take to get out of this? God will give you the strategy and show you what to do. Now, wise leaders do not try to draw strength from their followers. We all love it when somebody tells us we preach good. We all love it when someone likes what we do or gives us a compliment about our business or about how we run things. Those are great. But you don't play to that. That's important that you get those things, but you do what you do for the Lord. Let it be the Lord who gives you your encouragement. 
Now, self-starters know how to encourage themselves in God. 1 Samuel 30 and verse 6, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. How did he do it? Well, I know how he did it. He did it the way we do it. He had to go to the Word. Now listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 32. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all day long, and there shall be no strength in your hand. That, my friends, is the curse of the law. It is found in Deuteronomy chapter 28 from verse 15 on through the end of the chapter, 54 verses of curses. And one of them is the curse of your children being stolen away from you. That's curse of the law. You shouldn't live in fear of that. You can't live in fear of that. I was at a church not long ago, and the Holy Spirit told me, there's a woman here who cannot sleep at night, because you are tormented with thoughts that something dreadful is going to happen to one of your older children. Your older child is not everywhere they need to be with God right now. They need to develop a little bit more, but the devil has been telling you he's going to hurt them and hurt them badly. Now you think that this is from the Lord, that this is a warning for the Lord, but I can tell you it's not because it has torment. When God warns you, it's so you can take action, so you can pray, so you can use authority and then have peace. God doesn't torment you with fear to give you words about things you need to stop. Now, David knew then that this is the curse of the law. He would have known that. That's the, the, how David followed God, was he knew the word. So the cause is not lost when negative circumstances arise. The devil was probably telling him, it's too late. They're already gone. They're not here. But David, in just a little bit of memory, knew exactly how this whole thing worked. Listen to this. He said this to King Saul. Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it, struck it, and delivered the lamb from its mouth. Pay attention to that. The lamb was already in the mouth of the lion, already in the mouth of the bear. In other words, it looked like it was already over, that it was hopeless. But David said, no, I delivered the lamb. I got the lamb out of the mouth of the lion or out of the mouth of the bear. So it wasn't over. So here he is in another circumstance, and it looks like it's over. And David had plenty of training to know, nope, it's not over. It may look like it's over, but it's not over. Now, when you have that kind of attitude and you go forward in encouragement, God will put things into your hand. God gave a guide to David, 1 Samuel 30, verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the field who had been with the Amalekites, and they brought him to David, and David said to him, Can you bring me to this troop? And he said, Yes, I can. I know where they're going. And David and his men found the Amalekites. They were able to recapture all of their children, all of their wives. Nothing had happened yet to any of their family members. They were completely preserved. And on top of that, they were able to take charge of all of the possessions of the Amalekites. Now this whole thing flipped and was turned around because David was a self-starter. Self-starters know how to encourage themselves in God. You know, when you read David's Psalms, he wrote many times, Bless the Lord, O my soul. He was talking to himself. And sometimes you can't find another human being who can encourage you like the Lord can and like you can in the Lord. I got to tell you, I remember coming to Tulsa in 1978. I wasn't here maybe six weeks, two months. And I knew 
that it wasn't a fit. I knew that the church that I was in was not going to be a long-term situation. I absolutely loved the pastor, and I thought I knew him well. I didn't. When I got here, I saw we're different, and I can tell he really doesn't like me that much. I could see it. And I thought, I, I, I won't finish my ministry here. And so I was brokenhearted. I remember driving after I dropped my wife off uh, at home, my wife and son, they, uh, I took them to the apartment. Uh, the Maybe Center was about two miles away. I went over to the parking lot at the Maybe Center, and I started crying my eyes out, praying to God. And the Lord told me, go back home. And he said, I want you to pray in tongues. I'm going to give you the interpretation of your tongues, and I want your wife to hear it. And so I went back to the little apartment. I told her what God had said. So we knelt down together and we began to pray. And this is what the Holy Spirit said. Thus saith the Lord, you will not fulfill your ministry in one church because I called you to something more than one church. I will bless you while you're here, but your ministry is going to grow and I'm going to give you favor. And this message that you have concerning ministry to children you will take to America, and you will stand shoulder to shoulder with men of God all over this nation who will endorse you, who will receive you, who will back what you do, because I have called you to a nation and not just to one church. Now, that didn't happen overnight, and it took some time before it all came about. But every time I got discouraged and every time things slowed down, every time it looked like it wasn't going anywhere, I reminded myself of that word. It encouraged me. It lifted me. And now, 50 years later, I can look back and say, it came to pass. It came to pass. God did something that I didn't think he could do, but he did it. And I'm blown away by it, still blown away by it today. You're going to be an effective leader, you have to become a self-starter. You have to learn to encourage yourself. You have to learn to encourage yourself even when you get hit with devastating circumstances. Things will not always go your way, but it's how you respond to those things that will determine whether or not you finish or quit. And you can be a finisher. Now, self-starters are revealed through crisis, uh, all of the great Bible stories start with a crisis. The ones that we love to tell, they're not mundane stories of how everything went smooth. They are stories of how there was a great crisis, and it is in the crisis that the great leader was exposed and brought forth. Something great came out of the crisis. When things are running smoothly, flawed and compromised leaders have an ability to blend in with the pack but their true character doesn't show up until there's some kind of pressure. Now, pressure doesn't destroy anyone. When I hear someone say, oh, I'm under such pressure. Well, pressure really doesn't destroy anybody. Pressure only reveals what is inside you. Uh, and so it's how we respond to pressure that determines what we are going to be. Uh, therefore, no one ever really rises to the occasion. Uh, what we do instead is that we fall to the level of our preparation. 
You know, some years ago, I went to Alaska to hunt brown bears. And um, my guide told me, he said, brown bear hunting is 98% uh, sheer boredom. And I, I finally understood what he meant. And he says 2% sheer terror. And I also found out what that meant. But uh, for five days, we looked with binoculars and spotting scopes, and we watched bears way off in the distance. And we were looking for an old, old bear, a big old bear. We want a big old boar. We're not going to kill a female. We want a boar. We want a boar because he probably is going to die in the next year or two. And when they reach a certain age, they really don't breed as much as you might think. They actually become more occupied with killing cubs. And that's exactly what we saw. We saw a big old boar, bear, grizzly bear, brown bear. We saw him on the snow fighting with a female trying to kill her cub. And so we made a decision, let's climb the mountain. Let's go up there and see if we can encounter him. Well, we climbed the mountain and we thought, you know, he's probably gone by now. We did see the female and she and her cub had gone about 1,500 yards away. They were in a snowfield and they seemed to be fine. Uh, so we were thinking, well, he's probably still trailing them. So my guide turns and walks just a few feet away and says, I'm going to look behind us. And he comes running back about 15 seconds later and he says, he's coming. I said, how close is he? He said, he's 40 yards away. Now, a brown bear can cover a 40-yard distance in 2.5 seconds, so we didn't have much time. I put my earplugs in because my gun is really loud, and we turned and began to walk, and I mean five steps. We're right there where the bear is, and he sees us, we see him. We meet actually on a mountaintop, and he is moving back and forth like this, and you can tell that he's getting ready to do something. I wasn't really too concerned, and I'm going to tell you why. I had been preparing for this for a long, long time. I had asked all kinds of questions. I had tested my gun. I actually fired my gun into a stack of boards, and I knew that my gun would go through, my bullets would go through a group of boards this thick. I thought, there's no way that any bear can hold up to that. And so within just a few seconds... I pulled the trigger and fired three shots in rapid succession, and the bear fell. And sure enough, when we got to him, we found out he was so old that his teeth had disappeared into his gums, and he probably would have died. And that, that's the perfect animal to take out of the herd because it has no bearing on the herd. It doesn't stop the population. There's no population change. This guy's going to go anyway. But uh, I was prepared and I fell to the level of my preparation. That's what a self-starting leader does. You fall to the level of your preparation. You don't ever rise to the occasion. I, I tell young hunters, don't book a hunt in Alaska for a brown bear if you haven't done quite a bit of hunting. You, you don't need to be nervous when you're in that situation. You need to be very confident and you need to know what you're about to do. And so you fall to the level of your preparation. I had, I knew my gun perfectly. I knew how to work it. Uh, in fact, I had four of those guns in various different calibers. No, so no matter where I was, what I was shooting, even if I, at a rabbit, I, I had the same gun in effect because it all worked exactly the same as my big bear gun. And so I wanted to be thoroughly prepared for anything and everything I might be able to face. I knew that if I didn't get the bear down, if I happened to miss, 
he might keep coming. So I had three bullets wrapped with a rubber band right here in this pocket. I had two more sets of three bullets around my waist. So I know that if I need those bullets, all I got to do is reach up and grab them, and I got three if I get one. And I know how to speed load that gun. I can get it done in no time. I fell to the level of my preparation. You do not rise to the occasion in anything. We see these football teams that win games in the fourth quarter. Can I t- and, and we have a high school football team, and we do win a lot of games in the fourth quarter, sometimes in the last minute, sometimes in the last 40 seconds. We've done that several times. But I can tell you this. I know that the team practices the drill. All the plays they run, they do it all the time in practice. The coach takes them through a speed drill. They've got to learn to move that ball down the field in 45 seconds to a minute to get into either field goal range or to score a touchdown. And so they, they don't rise to the occasion. They fall to the level of the preparation. That's what a leader does. He prepares himself ahead of time. So we're going to talk about how you get this done. <clears throat> Flawed leaders are consumed with their image. To them, the most important thing is image, and image is a big part of our culture. Uh, our, Our social media profiles are huge. They're very important to us. What our church looks like on the website, how we come across, uh, how we dress, and so forth, All all of these things are so important with a lot of people. So flawed leaders put an image over developing substance. Let me tell you something. Developing substance is far more important than developing an image. Now, developing an image may carry you a certain distance, but it won't last. I can tell you, and I have predicted this, I don't do it publicly. I'm very careful about how I do it. I may talk with precious few people, but I can look at a young leader and I'll say, that guy's not going to make it. He won't go another 10 years. There's going to be a scandal associated with him because he is consumed with his image more than he is about developing substance. Substance will take you to the finish line. Developing an image will not. I didn't say developing an image wouldn't take you to a high place because it does, but it won't get you across the finish line. Self-starters fight for the welfare (coughs) of the people around them more than they fight for recognition. They're true shepherds. They really care about their people. That's what you see about David. <clears throat> Pardon me. David was concerned about his people like they were sheep, and that's why God picked him. It is because he was willing to lay his own life on the line for sheep. God knew he would do the same thing for people. Now, real leaders learn how to respond to a crisis. They can't help themselves. When a crisis emerges, they don't run and hide. I see some people (coughs) who do love to run and hide when trouble comes. A real leader doesn't do that. A real leader will stay and face the music. They do not like to run when there's a crisis. (coughs) A real leader cannot accept compromise or mediocrity. They want to see things done right. They would rather be in a smaller setting where integrity is treasured rather than being in the spotlight where there is great compromise. Now, leadership is often lonely, and you see it in the ministry of Jesus. And here we are in the book of Mark, the sixth chapter. I'm going I'm to begin reading in verse 1. Then he went out from there, came to his own country. His disciples followed him. 
And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty works there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Uh, the margin says, people with minor ailments. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now Jesus was affected by familiarity. In other words, the people who had known him for the first 30 years of his life were so familiar with him, they could not accept him as the miracle worker and as the Son of God, Messiah. They couldn't do it. And it's because of familiarity. It wasn't because they knew that Jesus had committed sins. They knew that Jesus had been very ordinary. He was ordinary for 30 years. He did no miracles. There was nothing great. The book of Isaiah chapter 53 says that he was low-key. There is no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing about him that when you looked on him, you said, oh, look at him. I can tell he's destined for great things. Isaiah said it was just the opposite. And so Jesus was, was treated with less than respect because of familiarity, because leadership is lonely. And when you choose to be a real leader, you may often find yourself not being respected by people who grew up with you or people you would think would want to help you the most. My son was in a church not long ago where the pastor was uh, the state championship winning quarterback. And uh, it's been years ago, probably 20 years ago, that he led his team to a state championship. And my son said to him, I'll, I'll bet that's really helped you. And, and this young pastor said, no, actually it hasn't. He said, even though this is my hometown and I won a state championship here and I was the starting quarterback, he said, there's not one person off my football team who has ever come to our church. We've built this church with just regular people. Now that's interesting. So you think all these things that, that if someone has had this or that or the other, uh, that it's going to give them an edge but you know what? God loves to build things with ordinary folks. You doing ordinary things happens all the time. Now, concerning Jesus, it says in John 7, 5, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. So there was a season when his own family wasn't supportive of his ministry. I want to say this, for you to be everything you're supposed to be, be careful who you confide in. Uh, if you're a pastor, leader, don't confide in just anybody. Uh, if you're even the leader of a business, don't confide in just any of your employees. Sometimes they're not able to handle the information you may give them. Find a friend outside your organization uh, with whom you can confide. Uh, Jesus knew what was in man. I want to read to you from the book of John. And that's why he didn't confide in man. This is John 2, 23 and 24. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many people were convinced that he was indeed the Messiah. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew what people were really like. No one needed to tell him about human nature. 
People can be very fickle. That's why as a leader, you have to be careful who you pour your heart out to. Even a perfect leader can have an enemy inside your ranks. You know, I see this from time to time. A pastor is betrayed or a leader is betrayed by someone in his company. Someone does something very unethical. Someone turns on you. And we very often will co-opt that. And here's what I mean by that. We blame ourselves, thinking that if we had done everything right, that this would not have happened. But I want you to think about this for a minute. What error did Jesus do that caused Judas to betray him? What wrong thing did God the Father do to Adam and Eve when he created a perfect world for them? You see, you don't have to do things wrong for other people to fall. In fact, there are times when we may make mistakes and faithful people choose not to think about that. They look at the long measuring stick. They look at the track record of how many good things we've done. They, they don't look at that little error you made. They, 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 they're not looking for a way to discount you. They want to pray for you. That's what you need. I, uh, <clears throat> I uh, have learned over the years not to be condemned for lack of insight when an insider turns on me. Sometimes I look back and I think I probably could have done this a little better. Sometimes uh, it wouldn't have mattered. So you have to learn to keep your eyes on the Lord, and you realize that being a leader is a lonely thing. You won't be able to be one of the pack where you run with all the people, and everybody knows the secrets of your heart. You be careful who you give your confidence to. And there are people that God will put in your life, and if you don't have one, pray for it. Pray for God to give you someone to be your friend, to help you to be a confidant for you that will help encourage you in a time of need. Well, that's all the time we have for today. But in this first week, four things that every leader needs to know. You've got to be a self-starter. And that's what I hope you were able to get from what I've taught you so far. We'll pick up here next week. See you then. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. Ratings and reviews help us reach more people. So take a moment to leave a review on your podcast app and consider sharing an episode with a friend or family member that needs to be built up and encouraged in the Lord today. Thank you for listening.